This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Gamma Trade Show. Testicular Quackery. Keeping It Real. And Jesuitical Conspiracy Theory. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The dull, frazzled, jet-lagged, slack-jawed look on our faces and the tapping of laptop keys as we frantically and thwartedly attempt to log on to the airport Wi-Fi suggests that once again we are issuing another travel advisory. And for this week's show, uh, Ken is back from the Gamma Trade Show, or GTS, that is known among the condescenti and effendi. Uh, <laughs> you've, is... you've just gone insane. <laughs> Well, this is all part of my uh, pre-show ritual now, an attempt to like have uh, preambles, because I notice that the, the uhs come most frequently in the opening bits when we're trying to get into things. <laughs> so anyway, speaking of insanity, this show, uh, show takes us to Vegas, and unlike most game conventions, as, as the trade show moniker suggests, uh, is closed to the public and is for industry only and is where one finds the new hotness. So, Ken, what new hotness didst thou find? At the Gamma Trade Show, I found not a tremendous amount of new hotness on the floor. The uh, cycle is just a little too short in game development to produce uh, super new hotness uh, right out of the box there. Uh, there are people who had all manner of interesting things that they were going to have uh, at uh, Gen Con, which is one of the reasons I go there is I write the uh, new hotness column for the Gen Con attendees booklet, and it describes all the new wonderful things that are going to be out. Uh, so, for example, I got to hear about um, the uh, various uh, new board games from uh, Cryptozoic or from a company that was not familiar to me that's in, importing a number of sort of really, really good-looking uh, board games from overseas, one called Trajan and one called Takedo both of whom had that sort of really, really high-end look to them that uh, I, I don't know if it means it's a good game design, but it's... So is, a... is Trajan a game where you try to find a suitable font for movie posters? <laughs> I, I, th I think Trajan is uh, perhaps a, uh, a game in which <laughs> you attempt to decide whether or not your middle name should be spelled with an I or a J. It's, uh, you know, one of those uh, guessing games. No, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what goes on because I only have a, you know, a couple of minutes with each booth because I have to gather my new hotness as I may. Um, there was another uh, game from a company that I forget what, uh, what the name of the company is, so it's a fairly rotten deal of me to plug them here, called Arkham Skies, which looked like sort of an interesting uh, Lovecraftian uh, air adventure game. And then they had another one that uh, was, I think, called... I forget what the name of the, of the actual game coming out. All of these are secreted on index cards far away from this, uh, from, from this microphone. Um, but it's a combination of mage and fringe that sounded like an interesting attempt at the sort of high ground of metaphysical role-playing that uh, I hope to see that come out. 
of course, all of, you know, our old friends uh, had various uh, new things that are going to be coming out. Uh, for Mutants and Ma Masterminds, Green Ronin has the uh, power uh, guide books. The, the each of they've, they've had these uh, PDFs that have been coming out over over the last year, I guess, uh, describing each specific power in Mutants and Masterminds, how it works. They're going to assemble all those into a book that will be available. They, <laughs> the, the other problem, of course, is that a lot of the companies, they have things that they think will be available, and then one or another uh, roadblock gets thrown up in their way, and the thing is not going to be out at Gen Con. Do you mean that unexpected things happen in publishing, Ken? <laughs> they do, and for some reason, more often than not, in role-playing publishing and gaming publishing. So things that get put into the, the new hotness column do not always appear at the show. And so that has happened a number of times with various uh, Song of Ice and Fire things from Green Ronin. So I think that that's why their new hotness this time was something that they entirely controlled. Do you mean to say that Games of Thrones things are sometimes delayed? <laughs> indeed. Indeed. <laughs> I know that people who are used to only the novels uh, can't believe that such a thing would happen the way that they just drop out regular as clockwork on uh, February 1st of every year. But, you know, in, in the licensed world, I guess... Uh, the George R. R. Martin machine is not quite as uh, finely honed. Also, um, uh, uh, Cheap Ass Games has got their new uh, Deadwood game uh, about making a movie <laughs> about the West. Uh, that is, I think, right now in a Kickstarter. It's just finishing up its Kickstarter. Probably by the time this airs, it's finished its Kickstarter. So that will be the new uh, thing from Cheap Ass. Steve Jackson will probably have Ogre at the show, but they <laughs> urged me not to say it, so I didn't say that. Yes, we'll, we'll cut that out. We'll cut that right out. Uh, let's see. There was a number of other um, uh, things. Paizo has got the, uh, I think it's the Pathfinder Player's Handbook. They have a new Pathfinder book that's going to be uh, really big and a big uh, mega campaign that are going to come out. And Paizo, uh, interestingly enough, hits their release deadline. So if they say that's going to be out at Gen Con, that's certainly going to be out at Gen Con. It's always a delight to talk to the Paizo guys. I, it's, it's not always Eric. Sometimes it's someone else at the Paizo booth. But I show up. I ask my question. I'm given exactly what I need. The conversation is over in 15 seconds, and I can move on. And other companies, very large companies, companies that you have heard of, will stare at me in baffled uh, disbelief if I ask them what they will have coming out at Gen Con. They will simply not know. So it's a it's an exciting world out there on the frontier. Which is something you would you would think that people at a trade show booth in particular would have been rehearsed for. You would think. You would think. Every every so often, though, I got someone who's got the, their, their schedule. They've got a sell sheet. Uh, they got everything. They can just give me the, uh, the little um, uh, pamphlet, and it goes into my box, at, or into my bag right there, and then off I go with the pamphlet. So it's it's great fun. I, uh, obviously, that's not the only way that I gather the, the, the information. Usually about a month from now, I go out and I beat the bushes of my Numerous game industry contacts to make sure that no one is being missed, uh, that is not trying to be missed. So beyond the level of individual products, what sort of vibe did you catch from the show? What sort of health status did the industry seem to have this GTS? Uh, this GTS was remarkably healthy. I was uh, repping the Osprey booth because I am an Osprey author, or I guess I will be an Osprey author once the book is published, but I'm an Osprey author. I was repping the Osprey booth, and we were slammed uh, the whole first day, which is, uh, the show is two days on the, on, the, on the show floor, and then on either end of that is seminars and presentations. Right, and when one works a booth at GTS, one is slammed, hopefully, by retailers, right? They're the people coming to find out what the product is going to be. Exactly. That is who I was slammed by. Retailers who came out, and they wanted to know uh, what, the, what the new hotness was specifically from Osprey, which is the myths and legends 
series of uh, taking sort of the Osprey one-stop shop approach with the good art and the great research, or rather the great art and the great research, and uh, turning it from uh, Italian light tanks of World War One to Jason and the Argonauts or Dragon Slayers. And so that's going to be a new Osprey push into the fantasy space. Retailers were really interested in that, but there was a lot of retailers. We were literally mobbed. I kept thinking, well, I can get away at some point and start my new hotness interviews on uh, the first day. And I couldn't do it. I had to be at the booth answering questions. Uh, Bruce, the uh, Osprey marketing uh, guy, uh, the marketing supremo, who was also there sort of answering the harder, more detailed questions. And we just, we, we did not, we were not able to take a break uh, that whole first day. And everyone else seemed to have a similar sort of, of to an extent, surprising response. The uh, game store uh, field seems to have been evolutionarily winnowed again by the Great Recession. And now there are new green shoots poking up. I think I saw on the floor uh, some information suggesting that we have actually seen a growth in the number of game stores that uh, responded to the ICV uh, surveys and such. And so we are beginning to see perhaps, uh, you know, a, a, a resurgence of green shoots in the area. And, we, and certainly in terms of previous GTSs, this was much busier than it has been. Uh, even when I worked the Osprey booth last year, and Osprey was a sponsor again last year. So those, those, uh, those variables held constant. This was a much busier show. So I think that either there's been a new generation that has discovered the Gamma Trade Show, or there has been a general increase in uh, game prosperity, game store prosperity across the land because they were able to send people out. Uh, certainly, people who are running absolute top end game stores, uh, I'm, you know, your, your end game or uh, modern myths, don't get out to Gamma Trade Show as often as sort of the, 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 the middle tier of game stores, the guys who've got their store open, they've you know sort of gotten their feet under them, and now they want to move up to the next level. And Gamma Trade Show, you know, lots and lots of seminars and presentations and how to work your POS and how to do this and how to do that type things for the retailers, and as well as the dog and pony shows by us manufacturers saying what we're going to have coming out, that appear to really help, and certainly... Uh, the game stores that I see there are not always the same game stores. I see a, a slow turnover. I've been going out there for the last uh, decade or so, uh, repping various booths or just wandering around uh, doing my quasi-journalistic duty when I had the out-of-the-box column. So at the risk of over-interpreting anecdotal evidence, mm -hmm. it seems that we're seeing a counter-movement to the assumption that retail is kind of going away and that we're going to be moving more to an internet-driven direct sales pathway to get stuff into people's hands. And so, for example, did you see the impact of Kickstarter changing the way that people promote their upcoming products to retailers? Did you hear a lot, well, you know, this is going to be the Kickstarter and then you can have it? Or uh, was there uh, much talk of uh, crowdfunding at all? There was a lot of talk of Kickstarter, as there are wherever three game professionals are together. Uh, the interesting thing here was that there were uh, booths and represent representatives of various uh, companies that provide various degrees of Kickstarter fulfillment. So if you finished your Kickstarter and now you have to ship, you know, 8,000 books, rather than do it yourself, you can hire one of these guys to do it. And they will take the single drop shipment and then they will deal with it. And 
I think there were two or three companies that had one or another degree of Kickstarter fulfillment. One of them went all the way up to being a sort of full-on uh, game studio. They have an art director, they have um, production people, the uh, print buyers, and so they will, if you've drastically overestimated the amount of uh, of support you had or that you drastically underestimated more likely your costs, they, if they really believe in the game, they'll come in and basically publish it for you, and then obviously you get a much smaller piece of uh, the the resulting net than you would have if that you they just acted as your uh, as your fulfillment guy. But they were, I mean, they they really seemed like they were on the ball. They have a, you know warehouses and all kinds of uh, activity going on. And then there was other companies that I didn't spend quite as long talking to because they weren't strategically located next to the cheap ass booth. But uh, they had a similar degree of sort of you know we're we're taking the Kickstarter availability and we're now trying to extend the reach for the the individual publisher who doesn't necessarily want to go uh deal with um you know uh, 4500 people who need uh, boxes and keychains and uh fripper frap and whatever else and of course the problem being that if you don't estimate your your shipment cost for all those keychains and fripper frap you wind up losing a substantial amount of money even on a very successful looking kickstarter Right, and I've sort of long figured that the people who are really going to make money on crowdfunding, assuming that crowdfunding remains a thing, are the third-party people who come in and, and provide services, as you suggest, for people doing Kickstarters. Because, uh, you know, just as the people who, you know, make a lot of money on role-playing are the dice manufacturers because they serve everybody, uh, somebody who inserts themselves into this process and delivers something that is worth having are, is really going to, uh, you know, have a business model that works. Yeah, and the, I, the, as we saw with the previous uh, expansion of uh, independent game fulfillment guys, the real question is how sound is their underlying business model? Because if they're coming in and saying, we can do it for 15% of cost, and it actually costs them 16% of cost, it's only two or three cycles before they go out of business, leaving a bunch of people stranded. And obviously, the guys I talked to all seem to have their act together in a very professional way, but I didn't, you know, examine their books. I just talked to them at a trade show. So that would be the sort of thing to keep an eye on, because we've seen the same uh, rise and fall of the fulfillment business in the independent game side. And uh, I'm hoping that people have looked at that and learned and have at least done their own math well enough to know that uh, they can't charge below a certain amount, regardless of what the market wants. Right. And by definition... Whether you trust someone to do fulfillment or not depends on how efficiently they execute that because that's all a third-party fulfiller is, is offering. And we saw in the indie space, you know, people, uh, you know, in one instance were really left holding the bag because the person they were relying on, you know, wasn't able to deliver. They achieved a, a you know, critical mass or whatever it was. And, and uh, so a lot of people were left stuck. And so uh, hopefully everyone will choose... Uh, who does choose to fulfill will choose to fulfill through people who are able to do it because if not uh, that's another new big thing that can go wrong mm -hmm. that you might you know want to list on your risks and challenges section of your kickstarter is that you know you're entrusting uh, a lot of the uh, deliverables to a third party and you know the question is are they going to be able to do it or not but again i emphasize that the people i talked to at uh, gts they all had plenty of Kickstarters that they'd done this under their belt already. So 
if their if their math is faulty, it is not immediately faulty, and I don't have any reason to assume that someone you know can't do math merely because they're in the game industry. That's <laughs> that's not an a priori uh, truth. It's just something that uh, turns out to happen occasionally. And so, uh, was there any interesting yet broadcastable scuttlebutt you uh, collected along the way? I picked up a, a fair amount of scuttlebutt, but I'm not sure how much of it is broadcastable. Um, I did uh, hear that all the numbers that you think of when you think of Munchkin are still too small, uh, that uh, Steve Jackson is still uh, remarkably successful on, on, that card, on that card game and that, and that experience. I heard um, a lot of sort of uh, personal animate version of the sort that we don't lower ourselves to here on this uh, podcast, but it was all very entertaining, especially over a couple of uh, drinks. Well, often you can tell who's up in the business because they're the people that uh, the gossips are slagging. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, I remember the year in the early 90s at uh, Gen Con when uh, people stopped uh, slagging uh, TSR and started slagging White Wolf, and you you knew they'd arrived then. Yeah, because they were because they were the the bad news bears. There was um, the, the, there was not an awful lot. It, it in the past there has been a greater or lesser degrees of sort of industry conversation that happened around Gamma. I think this Gamma A it was so busy that people were surprised that they didn't have time to um, uh, engage in so much hanging around the bar uh, idly uh, gossiping. And I think a lot of it also is because, in general, the healthier the industry, the less time you have to, um, uh, you know, to, to to go around picking fights with other people. You've got your own uh, fish to fry. So there was there were there was you know some degree of of, uh, of fun, but a lot of it was a very sort of business oriented uh, GTS, which is which is good news, of course. And the other thing that uh, is interesting about that is that over the over the years, I think the game companies have learned to use GTS, uh, which is maybe not the best thing in the world for GTS, but some of the major companies, Fantasy Flight, for example, didn't have a booth at all, although Christian Peterson, the president of Fantasy Flight, was there, and so he had all of his meetings in Las Vegas uh, with people who were at the sh at the floor. He may even have bought a badge, but he didn't buy a booth because everyone knows Fantasy Flight, and since Fantasy Flight is one of the companies that does not reliably make their ship dates, um, he... He wouldn't have an awful lot to say to retailers that uh, the distributor wasn't already saying to the retailer, but he had meeting, meetings that he had to uh, take with distributors or with other um, uh, creatives, and that's what he was there for. I used to get a lot of creative meetings in at GTS, and to a lesser extent, that has dropped off uh, in the in the last few years, primarily because a lot of companies don't send their, their creative uh hires down to GTS anymore. They send their marketing guy or their sales guy or whatever, or they're repped through larger uh, companies like PSI that, that came down and they repped a bunch of companies. The other thing that made a GTS sort of sui generis this year, and I suspect is going to be an ongoing problem, is that it was the same week as PAX East. So a lot of people left in the middle of, of uh, Gamma to go to uh, Boston for PAX East. So that sort of threw, I think, the rhythm of the show off a little bit. And so, uh, one final question: Do you know how much money our colleagues lost at poker to James Ernest? Uh, James said that he was not playing poker for money at this show; that he was having that he was going to uh, play poker for money at another show. James, I believe, is becoming distressingly cynical about trying to get money out of game publishers. Uh, it's not that they're bad; they're not bad at poker. It's just that they don't have any money, and so therefore, <laughs> <laughs> and, and therefore, James is um, uh, 
is is not as uh as in love with that. Well, why uh, play with minnows when you can go find some whales? Exactly right. He he wants to swim with the sharks and and get bloodied up. Well, I think that covers the news from uh, GTS. So uh, let us land and uh, pick up our luggage and head on to the next hut. As we look around the comforting confines of the History Hut, its serried rows of uh, leather-bound books, its documents uh, filed in uh, ordered ranks, the maps on the wall, we can only notice that an awful lot of these maps, documents, and books are weirdly stained with monkey glands. So, Robin... (laughs) What have you been up to here in the History Hut? Well, I, I have to say, uh, your gland-spotting role, was, you just missed it slightly. It's mostly goat glands, actually. So I thought we would kick around some whatever story ideas and craziness we can bring from some real-life history found in a book I would strongly recommend called Charlatan, America's Most Dangerous Huckster, The Man Who Pursued Him, and The Age of Flimflam by Pope Brock. And Brock has this great talent for spotting the perfect little historical detail. He tells a great yarn, and he found an obscure little corner of early 20th century Americana to explore, specifically the epic battle between the millionaire quack doctor and empire builder, Dr. John R. Brinkley. Uh, Doctor is an ironic quote in this instance, and the officer of the American Medical Association, Morris Fishbein, who pursued him and after uh, many decades of struggle finally got him put out of business. And in something that will surprise you today, because today we in no way find our spam filters full of Viagra spam, Brinkley made his fortune restoring the virility of often uh, farmers, but a, a large swath of the eager male American public who wanted their uh, potency restored. And he did that by installing uh, goat glands, i.e. goat testicles, uh, in the glands, i.e. testicles of his patients. And he was a complete quack. He was not a real doctor that this was just, uh, he started out uh, selling uh, quack medicines and uh, had a experience as a con man before he lucked into this mode of business. And uh, for years, he was uh, opening up people and uh, shoving in things that didn't need to be there and wound up uh, killing a lot of uh, patients that way or maiming them. He also established a radio empire and was a radio pioneer. And through that was incredibly influential. Uh, For example, He set up the first border blaster station in Mexico, and because he played a lot of country music on his station, which was a big infomercial for his pharmaceuticals and his treatments, he wound up basically spreading country music uh, through America and was uh, sort of accidentally a a huge facilitator of that genre of music. Uh, He also killed a lot of people on the radio by uh, having this sort of write-in service, a sort of call-in show or write-in show, where he would diagnose your ailments over the air and tell you which of his various uh, high markup medicines you were to go and buy uh, from your local pharmacy. And of course, this is not advisable even when you are talking to a doctor. So he's the spiritual father of both Dr. Phil and Sanjay Gupta. 
Uh, right. Um, but, but way worse, right? Uh, <laughs> Certainly uh, worse on the percentages. I don't know about the absolute numbers. Yeah, no matter in, in, in what low level of esteem one holds Dr. Phil, and, and my level of esteem for him is pretty low, this guy's a whole other level <laughs> of, you know, uh, actively killing people. And finally, he uh, wound up in a big licensing hearing where he had to admit that uh, he really wasn't even doing what he said he was doing uh, in the medical procedure, let alone that he had any basis whatsoever for uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, installing goat testicles in somebody would increase their virility. And so finally, after years and years, he was brought down. But in the process, he managed to build a gigantic empire. He even ran for uh, the uh, governor in uh, the state of, what was it? Of Kansas. Uh, Kansas. The great state of uh, Kansas. And uh, pioneered a lot of campaigning methods. Uh, he was the first person to move from stop to stop in an airplane. And uh, he uh, used a lot of sort of populist uh, a political frou that was adapted by other people uh, and uh, in a way was also a, a pioneer of modern campaigning and of course is sort of largely forgotten today although of course medical quackery has not gone away. <laughs> and admittedly not a lot of governors of Kansas are remembered either so in, in fairness he's probably got more books about him than any governor of Kansas except maybe Alf Landon. I, I suppose so. So uh, what I wanted to sort of wring ideas out of, though, is a crazy detail within this crazy story. So Brinkley was reckoned to be a quack, but a completely respectable uh, medical doctor named Dr. G. Frank Lidston was at the same time performing testicular experiments in an attempt to uh, increase uh, general uh, potency and vigor. And what he did was he... Uh, went to Alcatraz and harvested testicles from the uh, dead prisoners who uh, died either of natural causes or were executed and installed them uh, under his skin over his ribcage. And he would uh, invite his fellow colleagues, including uh, Morris Fishbein, to to feel his ribs and, and feel these uh, uh, implants. And at one point, uh, you know, he even got a... Uh, third testicle installed in his own scrotum and uh, (laughs) literally the gift for the man who has everything. Yes. And so uh, he falls into a a long history of self experimenters, uh, which we find of course in literature as well. And uh, so I thought we would uh, bat around a a few ideas on how to take inspiration from either uh, the careers of uh, the quack, uh, Dr. Brinkley or the highly respected Dr. Lidston and uh, see what we can uh, wring out of them, as it were. Well, um, I should point out also that uh, the the boundaries, as you imply, are not uh, as uh, staunch as you might hope. Uh, the, both of these sort of fathers of endocrinology engaged in uh, various bizarre uh, surgical practices intended to restore virility. Eugen Steinock, the guy who sort of discovered testosterone, also was very fond of the half vasectomy as a method of restoring virility, doing it to, among other people, Sigmund Freud and William Butler Yeats. And uh, the father of endocrinology, um, a, a fellow named uh, Brown Secard, he was a, a, a doctor born in Mauritius to an American sea captain and a French uh, woman, uh, practiced all over. He was sort of the guy who got endocrinology going as a science. 
also was a firm believer in injecting uh, testicular extract into himself to uh, restore uh, youth. And his testicular extract, or those just as good, were marketed all over the country under names like spermine and sequarine. And so uh, you could buy them for a dime. You get a, a, a testicular extraction extract injection for uh, a dime. You get 25 for 250. They come with their own syringe and a, and a handsome box. When, when I heard about, uh, and I've read the, the Charlatan book, obviously, because it's great fun. And uh, the thing that, uh, that this reminded me of, of course, was the great Sherlock Holmes adventure, The Adventure of the Creeping Man, where the Oxford professor is engaged in a love affair with a woman far too young for him, and so therefore is having the um, brilliant Lowenstein of Prague send him Langer uh, uh, extract from the Himalayan Langer Hanuman monkey uh, <laughs> to uh, inject into himself. But sadly, the result is that he becomes a sort of a Dr. Hyde figure crawling all over the roofs of, of his ancient college and shrieking and gibbering and uh, uh, making his dog think that he's a giant ape. And his dog, of course, attacks him at the, at the great climax of the story. And so the notion that Lowenstein of Prague is out sending um, uh, Langer gland material to uh, at least one other guy in the story, he says, yeah, uh, uh, I have another uh, client, so write back if, if you notice any ill effects from right. the Langer gland material. Um, I, I only have so much Langer. So. Exactly. And he, he was, he was, in, in the story, he's sad that he can't send him anthropoid ape because those would stand up and not um, uh, <laughs> climb up onto the roof of the college so much. But the, but, but the, certainly, um, <laughs> certainly testicles are in the air in the era of, uh, of, of Dr. Brinkley's activity. And there's plenty of um, other sort of borderline characters. There's a, a Russian named Serge Voronov who goes around uh, uh, replacing people's uh, testicles with monkey testicles, which is perhaps where I detected the um, uh, the spatter in the hut uh, decor. There's a whole lot of, of, of things going on. Well, the, the advantage of goats is on a mass production basis, yeah, if you're right. running a big empire, you know, langers are thin on the ground. Yes. Voronoff was very worried that you'd, you'd run out of monkeys. Yes. Um, Brinkley actually originally required you to bring your own goat. Well, that's, that's <laughs> After good. After all, that proved impracticable, <laughs> and he began supplying uh, the goat, uh, no doubt, with a hefty markup. Well, yeah, obviously. He's got, a, he's, he's got, a, he's got radio bills to pay. The, yeah, the, the thing that makes me uh, happiest about Brinkley over, besides, of course, the killing people, is the border blaster aspect of it. The way that he, because he's just one guy who owns a radio station and doesn't have any particular interest in uh, driving, you know, musical experiment, experimentation, all kinds of things wind up on his radio stations. I mean, he's the first guy who played Hawaiian music in America, right? So... He's a, a, a guy who's, you know, possibly responsible for, uh, for sort of the tiki craze as well. If, if that, you know, extended down into the later border blasters, his border blaster, not the, the, the antenna, because that was torn down by the Mexican government after being pressured for a decade by FDR. But, uh, his, uh, transmitter, his facility, uh, was used by Wolfman Jack, uh, later on in the, in the classic, uh, sort of, expansion of rock and roll out into the American heartland through Mexican border blasters. So in a way, um, there is a symbolic parallel between artificial youth caused by goat glands and uh, rock music, I'm sure, that someone could do something with on a, uh, on a, on a, on a highly symbolic level, your, your nobilis or your mage type experimentation. Right, because country music at the time was a deprecated form. The, the big official broadcasters were broadcasting 
classical and light classical. And so, you know, this allowed the, you know, the actual voice of the heartland out through someone who's actually completely indifferent to music, but mm. needed to fill time. And it was because of his indifference and his lack of budget that he allowed this uh, first brand of outsider music to become a, a form of popular music. Yeah, the Hillbilly Hollywood is what they called uh, Del Rio, Texas, where he set up his offices right across the border from his radio station. And uh, he's, again, you know, you're, you're certainly correct that he, he killed a lot of people with his ridiculous nonsense operations and should not be held up as a, as a folk hero or, or a hero of any kind. But his sort of larger effect on America is remarkable for a guy who, uh, who, who runs for uh, governor of Kansas and uh, engages in, in goat surgery. It, it's, it's, he's, it's, a, it's a remarkable book, and Brinkley is a pretty interesting fellow just all the way around. I, I, he, and he makes, of course, the classic mistake. The thing that really brings him down is when Morris Fishbein um, uh, calls him a charlatan, he sues Fishbein for libel, and then that's the thing that that really you know brings about the the, the final uh, collapse of of his empire, uh, because he he winds up uh, having to pay the costs for his um uh, for his lawsuit, and then once he is officially uh you know out there in the news as a charlatan, people start suing him because they're full of goat gland. Yes. And, well, he was a vainglorious man who uh, styled. He was wont to wear an elaborate naval uniform on, on his yacht, and it's always the uh, the arrogance of the sharpster that brings him down in the end. Um, other uh, sort of obvious uh, plot hooks that you can pull out of this, if you want to do the Lidston story, you could rather than having uh, the recipient of the implant become more gorilla-like. In that case, he could become more like one of the uh, killers whose uh, glands he has incorporated yes. uh, into him. <laughs> sort of a, 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 an R-rated version of the severed hand story. Yes, or, you know, just general craziness and vigor. You don't have to hit that note too hard. Uh, you could uh, change that up a bit and uh, have the mysterious source of glands that the uh, either the official scientist or the Heartland's quack is installing in people could be from a crashed alien craft, so that could give you all sorts of sort of hybrid effects. Or you could update that to uh, today and make it uh, gene therapy, where the genetic material is of uh, suspect or supernatural origin. I should point out in that context that the hotel that he stayed at in Del Rio was called the Roswell Hotel. Um, and one more little historical detail that I thought was really fascinating was that one of the reasons that Brinkley was able to thrive is that there was a long tradition in um, American uh, culture and uh, legislation of being suspect of official authority, including the official authority of doctors. Now, mind you, this was during a time when medicine was extremely crude and it was not necessarily the line between, you know, the effectiveness of an official treatment and the effectiveness of a quack treatment was even more diffuse than it is today, but that there was a sort of a wave of legislation, what, in the 1820s, 1830s, that forbade uh, any sort of official uh, regulation of the medical uh, profession. Well, in, it, given that uh, this was right around, the, even then, in the 1820s and 1830s, um, uh, this was when uh, the medical profession was trying to criminalize midwifery uh, because they were unlicensed um, uh, uh, practitioners. And that even, and of course, down into, you know, Brinkley's era, you have medical professionals winning the Nobel Prize for medicine, inventing the prefrontal lobotomy, 
Um, you know, medic, <laughs> legitimate doctors in Brinkley's era and our own uh, certainly have. Um, <laughs> Brinkley does not hold the 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 mark the, uh, the the record for killing the most number of people with ridiculous medical procedures, and he happens to be someone who did it without a medical degree. But uh, it's the the culture of skepticism is not necessarily unwise. Obviously, you can take it too far, um, as with uh, the the crazy people who don't believe in vaccination and stuff. But the uh, but the the broader cultural tradition that produces a Brinkley is also the broader cultural pr tradition. Uh, that, that keeps all manner of, of outsider belief at least possible, if not um, uh, thriving. So if you hitchhike on Ken's time machine and find yourself uh, back in that era and uh, seeking emergency medical treatment, <laughs> just feel your doctor's rib cage and see if there's anything lumpy under there. Although, although as, as you point out, that guy, um, uh, the, the, the prison doctor guy, was a legitimate doctor. He just happened to be full of other people's testicles. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> given that you're a time traveler, you may want to equally escape either Lidston or Brinkley. Yeah. It's, it, the, the man coming towards you with a scalpel, it really probably doesn't matter what his degree um, uh, on the wall says, whether it's from the Kansas Eclectic Co Medical College or Harvard, as long as there's, uh, as long as you see lots of animals in very uncomfortable positions holding their crotch. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. D. Van Zant asks Ken and Robin, how do you run a compelling, exciting game in a real-world setting like Knight's Black Agents without tripping player disbelief? Uh, D. Van Zant himself is occasionally tripped up by depictions of punks and hackers in the movies, and if you've ever watched a movie with a punk or a hacker while having any familiarity with either subculture, you have noticed those sorts of problems yourself, I'll wager. Right, so there, there are sort of two separate issues that, he, that he's bringing up, uh, one of which is... Uh, how to make sure that what you're, what's going on in your game accords with reality, and the other is what reality level do you want your game to be at? So the example of punks, in particularly in 80s movies, being roving bands of murderous psychopaths uh, is a convenient, i.e. lazy, Hollywood and comic book trope in order to uh, have a random menace for the main character to uh, confront and to tell us something about the main character. Usually that the main character is a badass because he mm -hmm. then disperses the punks. But if you've met a punk in real life, you know that that uh, trope uh, of an easily recognizable thing that's part of our regular culture is completely unrelated to reality. Uh, the same with depictions of hackers and computer use in general in a whole lot of movies. Uh, traditionally, uh, for example, the way that computer interfaces look in the movies is always a good uh, 10 to 20 years ahead of the way your actual computer that you use all the time in real life looks and what hackers are able to accomplish uh, is quite different. And also, uh, for example, you know, this is something that impacts on modern investigative games. There's the TV procedural cliche of being able to take a fuzzy JPEG and then resolve it down through many layers of uh, computer analysis to get a relatively clear picture of someone when you know that in real life all you're going to get is a little blob of pixels. So that question just becomes a matter of informing people as to what reality you expect them to confront. So if you say, well, this is movie reality and 
hacking works the way it works in the movies, not the way it works in real life. And uh, those punks over there are, are, you know, not just outsider music fans, but are uh, basically orcs and mohawks. People will be able to react accordingly because the people in those movies know that the that world operates that way. And so, although those tropes are arguably lame and foolish, they are internally consistent. And then the next question is just if you are uh, doing something where the intent is to have basically our reality plus, you know, one level of genre premise as Night's Black Agents takes our real world of espionage and adds vampires to it, then the question becomes how much uh, detail players are going to want on the fly and how skeptical and forgiving that they are going to be. Well, I think a lot of that is uh, going to depend not so much on the genre question, because of course, as Night's Black Agents, as I point out, there's a number of different approaches to the spy movie, and the standard version of NBA is played in the reality of the Bourne films, not in the actual reality, and that there's a special uh, mode called Dust Mode, in which if you want to play in real reality, you have to play down in that one. Right, so if you've actually built into the game that very question that I was talking about, which is decide what your reality level is. Mm -hmm. And then the... But the Bourne films are specifically a kind of spy thriller in which... They have a facade of realism over their, you know, equally ludicrous uh, story. And there's nothing that happens in the Bourne trilogy that is, you know, makes, you know, more sense or is more reasonable than anything that happens in any James Bond movie. Uh, it's just that the uh, language that it's told in, the visual language and the directorial language and the sort of uh, um, tropes that they hit, the, 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 the code words that, that they utter are more real seeming. Once again, the actual CIA doesn't have the awesome computers that uh, uh, Treadstone has in uh, The Born Identity. You can go and you can look up the kind of nightmarish problems that the CIA or the Navy or any other uh, U.S. government bureaucracy has trying to get its computers up to this century, much less, you know, up to the sort of cutting-edge future computer that uh, we see uh, all over the place, all over the terminals in uh, Born Identity or wherever. And so the the specific uh, thing that I would take away is that the way that you convince an audience of something being real, and whether that's a movie audience or your game audience, is to present it in a tone that evokes realism. And that's what Knights Black Agents does try to do. It doesn't refer to imaginary countries or imaginary spy agencies. It's very grounded. I tried, you know, again, this is part of my begin with Earth philosophy all the way around, is I try and look for real physical things that exist that can then be given a conspiratorial or thriller gloss and made to look adventurous. And so while, um, uh, you know, the, the born identity obviously, you know, implies a, a huge level of, of government brainwashing technology that just doesn't exist. The way that it's presented is somewhat believable if you're willing to go that way. And that of course is the other half that the players have to be willing to pick up the ball when the GM uh, you know, throws it to them. They have to be able to run with it. And there are individual players who do let their knowledge of hacking, say, get in the way of their fun at playing a cyberpunk game. And for those players, the only real way for a GM to get around that is to make that player the arbiter of what hacking is in the game. And you either get them to write the handout or you get their 
their buy-in and you nod respectfully when they say, well, actually, you, you know, something or other, blah, 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 see, blah, blah, through it. And then you have to nod and say, yes, your character does that. You, you make that character play the hacker. And then, you know, if, if they're being out-hacked, you say, okay, you, how were you out-hacked? You tell me, because that's how they did it. And at some level, you have to have a willing player buy-in, which you have to have in any game situation. And I, I think that depending on the maturity level or the sort of uh, ability to let things go level of a player, you know, how pedantic they are, is going to be the real signifier. I mean, certainly, if I wanted to be pedantic, I, I, could, I could make it impossible no, for anyone to you ever play. would. No, yeah, obviously, I, I never do. It's, it's as foreign to me as, as a goat gland would be. But the, the desire to show off your knowledge is certainly part of the fun of a game like Knights Flag Agents or any sort of investigative game. Uh, you know, being smart is the, is the rewarded behavior. And so you have to, as a player, sort of balance how much fun is the game for everyone else versus how annoyed am I at this particular ridiculous thing that the GM seems to think happens all the time. And sometimes you're in the mood for it. Sometimes you're not in the mood for it. Sometimes the GM has built up enough trust that you're willing to, to put up with it. For example, if you're watching uh, a, a good movie, um, you're, you're watching Die Hard, the thing, you're not going to get upset about the hacking in Die Hard because Die Hard is such a great movie and you know that the hacking is a fairly trivial part of it. If you're watching the movie Hackers with Angelina Jolie, you really have to just be there for Angelina Jolie because the hacking is so ludicrous and so omnipresent and so theoretically the, the core of the film that you, it, it's just a mugs game to engage with it on any level. I would say, first of all, that a, a few facts go a long way. That if you introduce one sort of documentary detail that gives everybody the sort of the agreed upon feeling that what is happening is real. And then after that, you have more license to muck around because you've created that, uh, you know, in a horror game that creates the tension between our reality or our perceived version of our reality versus all, all of these crazy things going on. And another thing I would say is just on a practical level that today more than ever, a internet-capable device where you can quietly search for a fact is a huge benefit to a game where people are otherwise likely to get sidetracked on some historical detail that nobody can quite pull. So, for example, in a Trail of Cthulhu game that I ran, one night the question became, well, when did x-rays become available? And in the olden days, that same group of people would have, you know, despite whatever heroic efforts the GM wanted to exert, would spend a certain amount of digression time idly speculating on when that is, whereas now you can just, you know, pop up Wikipedia, answer the question, and often what you can do is you can say, well, let's just move on, keep the story going, and in the background, 10 minutes later, you can say, well, it was 1879 or whatever it was. 97. And 97, there you go. Um, and or, or you can just have Ken uh, yeah. over in the corner. That's the other option. Um, and so, you know, just by c consulting those facts and resolving those controversies, or for example, you know, would there be transatlantic flight to get you to Shanghai in 1937? And once you answer that question, people sort of go, okay, yeah. And they are able to envision it a bit more and, and settle down. So, uh, you know, the internet is a, an enormous tool for that sort of thing. It's a great... Uh, ender of arguments over facts that nobody quite has at hand, and I would suggest that you you know make full use of that. Yeah, to your to your argument that you start with a few facts or a few um, uh, solid 
uh, pieces of, of, of reality and then expand from those. I think that's what the, what uh, Doug Lyman and Paul Greengrass do in the Bourne trilogy is that they present things that we do recognize and we do know are real and they build their ridiculous science fiction adventure thriller on the back of those very real, um, uh, you know, things. I mean, it's the real CIA that is part, that is the uh, master of Treadstone. It's not, you know, some pretend organization. It's the real, um, uh, cities in Europe. They're not going to, you know, uh, sort of the Mission Impossible imaginary Europe. They're, they're going to, to real Europe in, in the Bourne Identity. And they, they have the advantage as filmmakers that they can shoot things in a very verite, very verite or quasi verite style that you as a game master have to, uh, emphasize with, you know, evocations of the real felt experienced universe. And, you know, I mean, you, you say, you know, have Ken in the room. Certainly getting your bluff in early is, is, is no, uh, is a great ad, uh, advantage to this because whenever I'm running a game and I get hacking wrong and believe me, as a, hum- as a humanities nerd, I know nothing about these devil machines. And I have people who do, you know, database maintenance and all kinds of other stuff in uh, my game group. But if I'm doing something about hacking, there is the presumption that I know what I'm doing with the rest of the story, and I trust my players well enough that I can turn to Josh or I can turn to uh, Ted when he was in my game and say, the hacker has to be able to do thus and so. What's the way that he does it that you wouldn't notice? And we did that in the playtest for Knights Black Agents. Josh was playing a, a computer security professional, and so... Anytime that the conspiracy had to hack something, Josh would sort of co-GM that part briefly and, and explain it. And then once I knew enough about it, or if I, you know, somehow picked up on a single actual fact about hacking, I could say it and Josh would be so surprised and pleased that he would allow <laughs> the next nine ridiculous things to go unchallenged. Because I'd paid uh, obeisance, I'd, I'd shown the touchstone of one actual fact showing that I'd done at least some of the reading, that I was not just simply lazily... Uh, rolling through uh, the, the the game world, and I think that again that that's true of of most players, certainly of most players that you want to play with anyway. That if they are got a, a, a doctorate in Egyptology and you don't, and you're running the mummy, you need to sort of have the first couple of things not visibly wrong, and then once they're playing along, you can either get them to provide the details you've missed, or you can provide nonsensical details and ask them to explain them which is another great technique that I find works. Uh, Well, I think we have uh, successfully answered that question, and it's time to move on to our final segment. segment takes us into the world of whispers and shadows and briefly glimpsed lights and paranoids tapping away as they are caught in the milky glow of their computer screens. In other words, we've entered the conspiracy corner, and uh, I thought it would be uh, topical to uh, look at the Jesuits as the uh, Catholic Church has just elected its first uh, Jesuit pope. Uh, But of course, the history of the Jesuits goes back a long way. And for uh, these days, if you're, you know, hanging out with the faculty of a religious college and the uh, especially 
cool guy you're talking to may well turn out to be the uh, resident Jesuit. In the old days, uh, there was a sinister uh, cloak of conspiracy theory around the Jesuits. So, Ken, I thought you could give us the 101 on the role of Jesuits in conspiracy lore. Well, the, the thing that you have to realize about the Jesuits is that the Protestant Jesuit view and the Catholic Jesuit view are weirdly similar because the Jesuits began as part of the Counter-Reformation, as part of the sort of more Catholic than the Pope uh, organization that would uh, sort of take Catholicism and give it a good shake and get the nonsense out of it and then be able to argue Catholicism again to a, uh, a, uh, uh, an educated audience of, of uh, European Protestants. That they needed to be able to go out and redefine and redefend Catholicism in Protestant countries. And so they became sort of, in a way, the shock troops of the Counter-Reformation, not just in terms of, of going out and, you know, uh, shutting down Lutheran churches, but in the intellectual sense. They would write uh, recondite theological arguments. They would go into the new sciences that were seen, obviously, by many Catholics as dangerous and bad, uh, you know, the Galileo bit and uh, all the other sort of problems with heliocentrism. The Jesuits were, were major astronomers. They did major work. in They, they were the fathers of seismology, the huge amounts of new learning that the Jesuits sort of said, look, everything that God created is part of the mystery. We have to understand that as well as we possibly can. And so to Orthodox Catholics, they looked like a weirdly creepy Protestant way of thinking that was nonetheless claiming to be more Catholic than the Pope and had, you know, like all the new orders uh, always do at the first century or so, had very tight discipline, had very tight uh, holding to their unique codes and visibly separated themselves from the rest of Catholicism. The Spanish Inquisition, uh, for a long time, thought that the Jesuits were engaged in plotting against the King of Spain because these guys didn't owe anything to the King of Spain. They were uh, their order was created by the Pope. Their general was appointed by the Pope. You couldn't unappoint a Jesuit. Um, uh, uh, the, the 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 guy who's the head of the Jesuits in Spain, for example, the King of Spain has no power over that guy. Nor does the Spanish Inquisition. And so they saw these guys as a dangerous uh, ideological threat in ways very similar to the way that, for example, a Protestant country saw the Jesuits as an ideological threat, because what they did is they looked at the Jesuit um, uh, insistence on winning the argument on logic, on what they called casuistry, which is making an argument from any uh, angle, which is, of course, just the way you teach rhetoric and debate. But uh, it sounds creepy when you accuse your opponent of being able to argue anything without uh, actually believing it. Casuistry sounds so much more perverse than logic. Than logic, exactly. And so the English, uh, for example, or the other uh, Protestant uh, countries, saw the Jesuits as a creepy infiltrating force of alien domination, much like, say, the John Birch Society saw the Communist Party. And the fact that the Communist Party was, in fact, a creepy alien force bent on global domination, as was uh, as was the Jesuit order, doesn't mean that the way that they were viewed was not a conspiratorial way as opposed to a realistic way. Certainly, there were underground Jesuits in Britain ministering to the British Catholic population and involved, to one degree or another, in various plots to bring a Catholic heir to the throne of, of England. Uh, similarly, they were, you know, filtering through Germany, doing the same sort of thing, and through other uh, Protestant countries, uh, in, engaged in what they saw as the most important thing uh, of the era, which was returning everyone to a refined and reformed Catholic uh, belief. And certainly that, to one degree or another, has been pretty much what the Jesuits were up to ever since. But those first seeds, those first experiences of the Jesuits, went on to sort of color 
the way the Jesuits are seen throughout uh, subsequent history. And whenever someone is either trying to beat up on the Catholic Church for whatever reason, so for example, secular authors like Eugène Sue in France would use the Jesuits as a sort of symbol of the dangers of restoring France to uh, uh, church control, or um, uh, people who wanted a Protestant state to uh, win, like Otto von Bismarck had uh, a great big struggle with the Catholic Church in Germany because he wanted, obviously, a unitary state under the Kaiser, and the Catholic Church wanted no such thing. And so he was in, responsible for whipping up a lot of anti-Jesuit frenzy because these guys were the, the shadowy shock troops of, of the Catholic Church engaged in all kinds of trouble. And uh, a lot of it also uh, turns out to have come from a guy who got kicked out of the Jesuits for being uh, one degree or another of, of a bad Jesuit, who then wrote a document uh, claiming that what the Jesuits were trying to do was, for example, um, uh, become the confessors of rich people so that they would leave their money to the Jesuit order, or that they would uh, use every means to entice young men to become Jesuits, including uh, the old implication of uh, sexual predation, which of course goes back to the celibate orders, you know, to the Roman times, much less um, to our times. But the uh, but but that becomes yet another strand of it. The the notion that uh, look, this ex Jesuit has blown the lid off and is revealing their their grasping contemptible uh, nature, which in this particular case is seen as a uh, as a, a lustful uh, worldly nature, not as the sort of uh, Moriarty-style intellectual supervillain that Protestant uh, uh, legend has them. So you have a whole battery of anti-Jesuit uh, lore that you can use to um, uh, to, to sort of uh, bang on the Jesuits back and forth. And that combined with the fact that they really were uh, independent from the various national governments and that they really were independent from the various national churches meant that they got themselves thrown out of a lot of countries in Europe after com a combination of that level of propaganda and their level of activity got, you know, too hot. And so, for example, the Jesuits were finally disbanded by the Pope uh, for a while uh, in the 18th century because of that level of, um, of, of sort of anti-Jesuit feeling. Uh, when the new Pope was uh, casting about for his name, uh, the other cardinal suggested that he uh, might call himself uh, Clement the Fifteenth. <laughs> as a historical nose-thumbing to Clement the Fourteenth, who's the one who uh, suppressed the Jesuit order, which is an example of cardinal humor. Yes. It's, it's, well, you know, it's, 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 it's funny because it's true. But, uh, again, the, the amount of uh, smacking people around in your papal name, I think, is, is fairly... Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it doesn't happen as much at, at the Pope level, regardless <laughs> of what the Curia would like. Yes, maybe, maybe his screen name is different. Right. I, I think that may be the equivalent of the trillion-dollar coin. That uh, it's just what something that they would like to see happen, but the uh, yeah the, the the whole Jesuit rep uh, because the Jesuits themselves emphasize their tight discipline, their uh, devotion to rationality and to reason and to pure uh, thought and planning ahead, uh, and that they are and their devotion to you know a strong uh, reformed vis-a-vis uh, -vis 16th century uh, church. Uh, there was a, a matter of fact, some of the Jesuits were very involved in the liberation theology movement in the 70s because they saw that as a reform kindred to the counter-reformation reforms. Right. So it's a tradition of uh, being uh, intellectual, of being uh, calculating, of being uh, separate from other temporal authorities. So that is all uh, really rich material for uh, conspiracy theory. So to what extent did... 
the conspiracy theories developed around the Jesuits then later got uh, projected onto uh, other uh, groups or other conspiracy theories. Well, I think that uh, some of the some of the what we got from the Jesuit conspiracy theory winds up becoming the pattern into which I mean the the parallels between the John Birch Society worrying about the communists and uh, good Protestants in England worrying about the Jesuits. There's there's a lot of parallels, and to some extent, you can say, well, is it just an architectural parallel? They're worried about the same kind of ideological overseas enemy, or is it because when you are a conspiracy-minded uh, fellow, you have read previous people inveighing against other conspiracies, and you use those patterns, or is it just the way that uh, the human mind immediately, you know, seizes on outsiders and others of a certain stripe? I don't know that the Jesuits, um, that anti-Jesuitism specifically, sort of become is the sort of thing that morphs into. Um, uh, specifically, uh, the you know the John Birch Society style thing, but I think that there's enough commonality that you can look at it. And I'm not familiar enough with, say, Spanish language conspiracy theory to know to what extent their um, you know anger at say the World Bank is uh, takes on the level of uh, anger at the uh, at the Jesuits, who are similar uh, alien technocrats who couldn't be fired by the home government. Right. And certainly anti-Catholicism in general, of which anti-Jesuitism is the sort of poster boy, mm -hmm. um, is, you know, only recently stopped being a thing in North America. You know, it's sort of retreated to weird little corners. And you might, uh, I remember uh, uh, my wife as a kid found that one of the family Bibles had this exegesis in the end that explained the book of Revelations as being, uh, you know, while the, the, Seventh Hills of Rome, that represents the Vatican and, you know, the Pope is the Antichrist. And it's not that by any means that uh, uh, her family uh, was aware of this really or knew, but it was just sort of a, an extra Bible that got picked up along the way. And then when you flip to the back, you go, whoa, what's going on here? But, mm -hmm. you know, obviously even, you know, up until 1960, there was a, an issue. Can you have a, a Catholic president without him, you know, taking secret orders from the Pope, presumably uh, delivered in whispers from uh, uh, Jesuits on the White House lawn. Yeah, the the the, the anti-Catholicism in America is obviously very similar to anti-Catholicism in Britain and comes from much of the same place. The um, specific role of the Jesuits is are usually seen as sort of the you know like if the if Catholicism is the empire, the Jesuits are you know Darth Vader. They're the really cool guys in black armor who are going to stomp around, and we have some of that on. Uh, sort of the broad conspiratorial left where they're worried about now Opus Dei. And I think a lot of the anti-Jesuit uh, paranoia from the 19th century has been transferred pretty much lock, stock, and barrel over to Opus Dei, which is a, a church order that, because it was founded in Spain, winds up having a lot of ties, for example, to Franco and uh, the various uh, phalangist uh, political movements, not just in Spain, but in other uh, Spanish-speaking and Iberian countries. And so people look at the Opus Dei and say, aha, this is the secret fascist international in almost the same way people would look at the Jesuits in the 19th century and saying, aha, this is the secret papist international. And I think in this context, another great point is the great 19th century, uh, I, th I think it's a 19th century uh, uh, way of thinking. It may have been very late 18th. But the notion that the great conspiracy has two arms. It has the right-wing arm and the left-wing arm, right? That there is a a Jesuit conspiracy 
and also an atheist conspiracy, and they're both working to destroy sensible Protestantism. And this got a huge bump up because Adam Weishaupt, the founder of the Bavarian Illuminati, was, like uh, the guy who wrote the um, uh, first anti-Jesuit screed, a former Jesuit. And he was a, uh, a professor at the U University of Ingolstadt, which was a Jesuit university. And he went, um, obviously, into uh, legend as the guy who is sort of the hidden hand behind the horrible powers of the Enlightenment and how it separates uh, people from their country and from their god and is generally a questionable sort of thing. And so the Jesuits become both the anti-Protestant uh, Catholics and the anti-Christian atheists simultaneously, which is another uh, great thing that goes back to their ability to argue from all sides. And it's like, the Jesuits know that much about atheism. Maybe it's because they're secretly atheist. And again, this is the sort of thing that they could be accused of by perfectly Catholic monarchs who wanted to get the Jesuits out of their country. Uh, so in other words, there's sort of an all-purpose, whatever your particular version of extremism is that is uh, reflected in your paranoia, you can take them off the rack. Mm -hmm. So has uh, anti-Jesuit conspiracy theory, is this in general fallen away the way that anti-Catholicism sort of fallen away, or uh, do we still see flashes of it in different places? I have a couple of really, really good anti-Jesuit conspiracy books that were published in the last generation. So... I think that it's the sort of thing that is, is fallow. It's, you know, it, it's no longer epidemic, but it, but it certainly is endemic. And should, uh, you know, uh, Pope Francis get up to something that, uh, the conspiracy minded don't like, I am sure we are going to see a big boom, or at least a big for the size of the industry boom in anti-Jesuit theorizing that, that goes on. The, the notion of, uh, the, the, of the Jesuits having now captured um, uh, the, the, the Vatican, I think, is going to be an interesting twist on it that we're going to maybe see a crossing the streams between Catholic and Protestant Jesuit paranoia. But I, I, I think that it still exists, certainly, and you can still run across it. it it's been less sexy because with the sort of um, the defeat of liberation theology, both in the seminary and in the field, um, no one in conspiracy lore has particularly cared about the Jesuits. But now that they're the Pope, uh, I think it's going to sort of come back just because it's it's going to be back in the news. So um, if you've got one of these uh, books in your back catalog, you're hoping that he shows up on the balcony stroking an iguana. Right, exactly. Or that um, uh, there are mysterious Jesuits seen at UFO crashes or comet impacts or whatever. Um, I, I, that, that actually would be great if you could somehow get a Jesuit UFO book out with the whole notion of the Jesuits being the, the astronomers uh, of the faith and that there's some sort of... Uh, Jesuits uh, and aliens as the two arms. I think that that that's got that's got legs to it. I, I, if I only you had time and a pen name, Ken. If only I had a pen name that could never be penetrated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and and uh, the the Jesuits that taught in my Catholic school were were certainly <laughs> as a, as a general rule both meaner and smarter than the other uh, teachers. So there was there was a degree to which we had the same sort of. Um, uh, same sort of respectful, proto-paranoid fear of the Jesuits even back in high school. So I think a lot of it may just be because Jesuits sort of, you know, sell themselves as these kind of dangerous badasses that it's not particularly as surprising if someone takes well, them at their word for it. Well, that may be something you want to play up if you're t teaching teenagers. <laughs> yes. Well, no, absolutely. I think the, 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 the place that Darth Vader is most needed is in a Catholic high school. Yeah. <laughs> to force choke anyone who gets out of line. Throw the chalk, Luke. 
Uh, well, on that note, uh, we uh, next week I have a, a papal mission for you in the uh, in the time machine. But I think we've uh, uh, well palavered for uh, this week, and it's uh, time to adjourn. Okay. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music as always is by James Semple. Declare us infallible on matters of doctrine at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>